Welcome to Fintech Impact. This podcast is an exploration of the financial technology world, interviewing different fintech entrepreneurs about what they do, their story, and what their impact is on consumers, incumbents, and the industry as a whole. Here's your host, award-winning financial planner, university lecturer, and writer, Jason Pereira. Welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Amelia Young, founder of Upside Consulting. Upside Consulting is a consulting company working within the fintech space, advising different enterprises on how they can meet the challenges of the ever-evolving technology world and how it impacts finance. And with that, here's my interview with Amy. Hello, Amy. Hi, Jason. How are you? Very well. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. So, Amy of Upside Consulting Group, tell me about Upside. Upside Consulting Group, I was a firm that I founded about 12 years ago, and our goal is to help our clients benefit from the transformation of the wealth management industry. So we'll get back to what that means shortly. Tell me about your personal history and how you came to found the company and why. Well, like many entrepreneurs, I founded the company somewhat by accident. Um, it was initially <laughs> as usual, as usual. <laughs> it was initially intended to be temporary, sort of a transitional effort, but I found that I really liked the autonomy of, of running my own consulting practice. By, and it linked, it created a common thread through my background. So I started my career on Bay Street. I was a sell-side equity analyst, buy-side trader, did investor relations for a mm-hmm. few years and uh, ended up in corporate strategy for a financial services company. So, you know, it wove all of those things together. So just evolve as usual for most business owners. Okay, great. So, I mean, reason you're here is to talk about basically trends and underlying themes in technology within larger institutions and how we're going to, these are going to implement and change the Canadian financial experience. And the first thing we're going to talk about you wanted to address was digital nudging and what that's going to mean for the Canadian consumer. So I've been an avid student of behavioral economics for over a decade now. And in a previous life, I worked for a company called Direct Energy and did a lot of work in the energy efficiency space. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we studied was adoption of programmable thermostats. Mm -hmm. And I find having watched the progression from programmable thermostats that nobody programmed, (laughs) actually about 10% of people programmed to smart thermostats where the device, you know, your nest and Ecobee kinds Mm -hmm. of things where the device automatically gathers information from your environment and recalibrates without the consumer having to do anything. Mm -hmm. I find that a great corollary to what's going on in the digital advice business today, because we started with this robo advice thing, Mm -hmm. which I liken to the early programmable thermostats because the consumer still has to do a ton of work to get any benefit out of the solution. They have to gather a whole bunch of information. They have Mm -hmm. to put it into the system and it's pretty crude. It doesn't automatically recalibrate when your situation changes. You have to go back and tell it, but there's no connection between your life or data outside of the robo advisor framework. Well, outside what you tell it. it, And the reason I'm such a fan of behavioral economics is because it focuses on the way people actually behave as opposed to the way way they're supposed to behave. There was a famous HBR article years ago called strategy and the fat smoker. And it basically said, you know, we all have this strategic planning capability, but if that were true, no no one would ever be overweight and no one would smoke because we would know that in the long run, these behaviors are going to kill us. And yet that's not the reality we live in. No, it's funny. I always like in classical economics, the period in which it was conceived of, which was Victorian England. And it's like, you know, of course then the aristocracy, well, everyone's prudent. Everyone's a rational economic man. And of course we're going to do things that are right. And it's like, come on, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> That's not life. Exactly. Yeah. That smoker. <laughs> um, so what I find fascinating about behavioral economics is it is it unpacks that mm-hmm. and it, it calls out specific biases and heuristics that characterize our real behavior. And so there's sort of three key buckets of biases that are relevant to financial well-being. There are lots of fancy terminology for these, but really they fall into th- to three buckets. The first is choice overload. 
So when we are confronted with too many choices, too many like nested choices where I have to go through a decision tree to yeah. get somewhere, we get overwhelmed. We put our heads in the sand and, and we do nothing. Or you take the default option to the simplest thing. So that's actually part of the solution yeah. is, is designing the defaults. proper defaults. Right. Yeah. So they're just, the choices are too complex and too numerous. Which is why a lot of group retirement plans end up in cash as a default. Exactly. Yeah. There was a fascinating study done on academics in the States, professors, oh, pro professors, <laughs> pension plans. Yeah. Okay. So the universities that they worked for yeah. and the number of changes that were made to when people started with the university, they would select, you know, an, an asset mix yeah. or a, a, a selection of funds. And they, they audited that over a 20 year period or something like that. And on average, people made less than one change. Yep. Momentum is over a 20 years. Thing. Yep. So that actually leads into the second bucket of biases, which is, is just inertia doing nothing. So what we have to understand is how little friction actually drives inertia. It, it takes so little. People will say, well, all you needed to do was fill out this one form or, no. and when people are consumed with their everyday life and the impact of these decisions lies in the future, mm -hmm. not dealing with this today has zero impact. Absolutely. Not dealing with it tomorrow has zero, zero impact. impact. The problem is the sum of all of those Tomorrow, we'll it's never death. it's never this one piece of cake that's yeah. going to make me fat, it's or this torture. one cigarette that's going to kill yeah. me. It's the accumulation. Yeah. So, but we don't, you know, just part of the way human beings are wired, we don't see that. Yeah, we're not well groomed to think of things in exponential terms. Right, yeah. right. The cumulative effect exactly. of things. And the third thing, which again is sort of related to this, is myopia. So mm. this one I I like to call the hangover principle because. Anybody who's have a, if people didn't suffer from myopia, mm -hmm. no one would ever have a hangover more than once in their life, <laughs> right? You've experienced this. And no one would give we, birth more than once in their lives either. So maybe well, that's the yes. evolutionary reason why we have myopia. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So those are sort of, there are a lot of fancy terms, yeah. you know, in proper academic would, I'm sure, critique my oversimplification of it. But I find those are really good guidelines. Mm -hmm. Things that are going, human beings are focused on what is happening to me right now. Yeah. Getting me to deal with anything down the road is extremely difficult. I'm, I have a strong bias towards the status quo. And if it's complicated, I sort of go yeah. la 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 and It's and interesting. It. I think that's one of the first lessons that all financial advisors learn is you think it's easy just to show people things that are rational and have them make a decision. But sometimes the hardest thing in the world is just to get people to move one inch to the right if they're just they're sitting still. Not because they're stubborn, not because they don't want they don't want to improve themselves. It's just the concept of getting just the effort involved. Mm -hmm. Sometimes is the most difficult thing in the world. Well and, and getting people to move one inch to the right actually might not be that hard. The problem is the industry doesn't ask them to move one inch to the right. Yeah. It asks them to, to run a marathon yeah. today. Yeah. And part of that, so, I mean, part of that's due to lack of proper tools and whatnot. I mean, financial planning is an incredibly arduous process when it comes to the impetus put on the client for data, data collection, right? And right. there's only so much we can do with the current tool set to actually minimize that. Well, and so that's, I wanted to start by talking about behavioral economics because that sort of makes the case for why things need to be done differently. Mm -hmm. So the reason I got involved with fintech a number of years ago is because I see digital tools, whether it's a mobile app or anything else, they open up a whole new world of tools to make things simpler, more personalized, easier mm -hmm. to act on for consumers. And we can keep information in their face, you know, frame up their decisions to show them the longer term consequences mm -hmm. in a way that just was never feasible with human advisors. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we advisors often position themselves or their value as providing behavioral coaching. But we're not there every day. Like we're You're not, not, we're not in their day. pocket every day. Exactly. You know, I think there can be, there can be huge value if we're facing a big market turbulence. We know Canadians underperform the funds that they actually invest in because mm -hmm. they get in at the wrong time and they get out <laughs> the at the wrong time. Study, yeah. yeah. So I think human advisors do have the bandwidth when we have those kinds of crisis events to keep you on the path and reassure you and those kinds of things. But the day-to-day -day 
spending, saving, borrowing decisions, all those trade-offs that, that we make every day, you just, you can't be there. So the technology can play a huge role in helping people with that. And similarly, the bit about inertia to get people to act, as you say, with the financial planning process today, yeah. you know, it still too often involves, okay, bring in your bank statements and we'll plunk in, you know, where your, where your money's yeah. going today. And God forbid I have accounts at three different institutions and I have to bring all of that. Yeah. It's just takes so much effort to yeah. even get any insight out of it. But even so, um, we're not there at the decision point. So I often make the analogy of, you know, oh, the bonus gets paid in. By the way, that was supposed to be in your financial plan, invested it here. Yeah. But, oh, you're thinking maybe instead you want to go on a vacation. Well, I think, you know, it would be lovely if we had that pop up in your phone and said, your deposit came in here. Click this button. Click this button to actually move it to your account. And then maybe I don't want to is a button. And they hit that. It's like, really? Well, if you don't do this, it's going to cost you this much in long-term returns. Like exactly. some sort of making that pain now as opposed to later. That's usually valuable. Yeah. So there was a famous study, um, sort of the one of the grandfathers of behavioral economics, Richard Thaler, who mm-hmm. just won a Nobel Prize for economics right, last year. <laughs> yeah. One of his seminal studies was something called Save More Tomorrow. Which I've been a huge fan of, and yet it's still not been implemented anywhere in Canada as far as I know. It has not. Um <laughs> Oh, so we're we're starting to have automatic enrollment in pension plans where the yeah. default is that you are enrolled in you know the, the, the three or four percent or whatever that is they'll start to pull that out of your payroll unless yeah. you opt out. Mm-hmm. So we've started to get there. But what was interesting about Save More Tomorrow was getting people to commit today to save future pay raises. Mm-hmm. So they call that an auto accelerator mm-hmm. function. And we don't really have much of that in Canada. And what's interesting is I, so a number of people will ask me why. And I went back and I read the study and part of in the, the preface to the study, one of the things Thaler talks about is the motivation for the mid-sized um, Midwestern manufacturing company mm-hmm. that was the subject of the original study, why they brought them in. And it's because the U.S. has something in their pension regulation that links the participation rates of junior employees to to the benefit levels that senior employees can As um, someone taking the USCFP right now, I can testify to that, that there is a non-discrimination bias clause that basically tests the amount of people contributing to the plan and the size of the benefit to what high high wage earning employees can get. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. So and so that's a huge incentive. So there we go. Yeah. The power so there's of incentives policy, yet again. So yeah. there's a policy opportunity for Canada to adopt. Yeah. That's interesting. Restrict and you know what? That bodes well politically because he's not going to say, well, you know, why executives can't get as much money if the rest of their people aren't benefiting to some ratio or degree. Yeah. Okay. And this, you know, this government seems to be talks about being um, really focused on, <laughs> on income inequality yeah. and, and yeah. sharing the wealth. And that would be a great policy lever. And actually one that's pretty much not overly burdensome or and from the standpoint of, no. you know, the exact, you know, the people who are already paying 50 plus percent in taxation aren't going to whine and cry about the fact that this is the case. Now. It's not cash out of my pocket. No, it's not cash in my no, pocket. It's, it's like help your colleagues yeah, yeah. make better decisions themselves. And most, most entrepreneurs, to my experience, have always had this entire benevolence factor to their employees or, or stewardship though they want them to help, right? Like, so for the most cynical set up these plans, not because they need the aggravation of the extra administration, but because the employees are asking for it and they actually feel the, the need to reward them for their work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this, you know, one of, one of the other things that I do is I'm an executive in residence with the Scotiabank digital banking lab mm-hmm. at IV at the yep. IV business school. And it's called the Scotiabank lab because Scotia, you know, gave the endowment to fund mm-hmm. this digital banking lab, but it's a, it's an independent think tank out of Ivy. One of the things we think a lot about is policy that supports the innovation in the fintech ecosystem. So things like we've just been describing, it's amazing how bits of regulatory change, we tend to think of regulation as something that constrains activity, prevents us from doing things, but there's lots of evidence in the fintech world where regulation can be a catalyst for innovation. So this pension thing we've just been talking about would be an interesting one. Yeah. And the things Um, like we had the same conversation with Paul Serini on this show about how things like GDPR are going to lead to, you know, while being restrictive initially lead to an infinite number of possibilities due to data rights access and control. mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm fully on board. The right kind of regulation can be incredibly positively impactful. Yes. So we see that in part in the UK. So Mm -hmm. they were 
ahead of the curve and, and had some bigger problems to solve in terms of industry selling practices when they banned embedded commissions a number of years ago. So they banned these embedded commissions and there was a fear that it would create an advice gap. And in fact, it did in the short term. But the reality is organizations might've scaled back a certain type of sales force, but ultimately then you have an underserved population and competitive markets being what they are. People then look at this new opportunity and, and think of alternative new novel ways to meet that need. And that had a huge stimulative effect on fintech innovation in the UK. So here's a chicken and egg scenario, right? To me, I look back at that and say to myself, well, this is kind of almost, it was almost like it was a little too early to prevent the advice gap from happening, right? Because you really didn't have proliferation of robo-advisors or anything like that, right? right? That could have, you know, what we've seen now could easily, if that was the same that happened in Canada, that advice gap, well, guess what? There's business models to cover that advice gap already, right? Yeah. And the, maybe it's just a, you know, again, checking in the air, egg scenario, maybe the global trend towards this move is what stimulated a lot of this investment or this thinking, or maybe it's, you know, it was just, too late. So I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I there's going to be an advice gap no matter what you do, including right now. There was a good chart put out. I think Michael Kitsis put it out the other day about talking about the strength of the retainer-based model. And he talked about, you know, percentage of American service by financial advisors and high net worth practices. And then there was like, okay, this, anyone with investable assets of, you know, less than a hundred thousand or whatever kind of income could basically use a retainer-based model, but then, you know, lower income people, just where are they going to go, right? Like there's no assets, there's no extra disposable income to pay for something, right? So there's always an advice gap. We, we, have, to, we have to accept that, right? But yeah, I think regardless, we're going to start to close the possibility or the size of that advice gap through digital implementation of various solutions. Yeah. And so I think this is something that the industry conversation, as we look at, at what we're going to do with trailer fees, needs to really think about where digital tools can be part of the solution. Sure. And the other issue that's coming down the pipe is this thing called open banking, where we're also following the UK's lead. The UK implemented open banking, actually went into effect just in January of this year. And for your listeners who don't really know what open banking is, mm. it basically begins from the premise that my bank information as a consumer is my own property. It's Which, not the asset of the yeah, bank. It yeah. is mine. Which technically under PEPIDA is already the case in Canada. But we don't act that way. Yeah. And so <laughs> no if, you, if you start from that premise yeah. that it is my, my yeah. data, therefore I should be able to choose who gets access to that data. So open banking in the UK basically mandated that consumers have the right to share their banking data with whoever they so choose. And mm -hmm. so, and that the bank has an obligation to create APIs to provide access to that data. And so what happened in, this is, this was a couple of years in the making, um, mm -hmm. but as of January of this year, banks were required to expose payments data. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting is the UK just the open banking rules only applied to payments data, not to loans mm -hmm. or insurance policies. Mm -hmm. So that's an important, they didn't go as far as maybe they could have. So when we talk about open banking in Canada and we start with this principle of it's my data, then we have to look somewhat separately at the implications of exposing different types of data, whether it's data about my mortgage, data yeah. about my credit cards versus data about how I spend, mm -hmm. that being the payments data. But this open banking policy is, is being reviewed under the review of the Bank Act right now. And it's an important issue for the entire industry, I think, to become more aware of. The banks are certainly on top of it. They've mobilized. They have lose, quite frankly. They do, yep. potentially. I mean, they introduces some some important strategic choices where it can be a benefit as well, because if it allows them to have access to other pieces of data that they don't have today, mm -hmm. it could provide an opportunity for them to provide better customer experiences as well. It's interesting you say that because, I mean, have you seen that entire slide deck on the Copernican revolution in banking? No. You haven't seen it? I'll share it with you. So it was the entire viewpoint was kind of a look in the shift in banking in general and trends. Talking about how because you have this entire fintech ecosystem, it seems to be growing and with data rights, it should grow even faster, that traditional banking will probably be segmented into a couple of different ways. The large incumbents will likely basically become, in a lot of ways, platform providers similar to like an AWS to people further down the chain. Yep. They'll still be there. They'll still provide the kind of all-encompassing simple service, but they're never going to be best in class because they're not focusing intensely on one specific need, right? Yep. And then build 
below that, you will have the people who use their services. And the first group will be kind of targeted niche aggregators. So say, for example, to the extent of, you know, picking any profession, say services specifically for doctors, services specific for computer engineers, that the entire experience is designed around the experience of those people. But those technological tools will be designed to be using the bank back end. And then was the, this Skinner's two by two? It was, it was like, it was actually it was even deeper than that. So then the next level okay. was, hey, you know what? I'm going to be the best robo-advisor. I'm going to be the best online lending one and whatnot. So I'm not sure who the author was. I'll share it with you. But it was just insightful in that, that shift in paradigm. And this is when I look at the entire banking system and say to myself, you know what? Quite frankly, you know, let's saying about Canadians loving their banks, but hating their banks, but lining them to give them money. And yet, meanwhile, you look at success rates or, or the um, customer satisfaction rates in some of the fintech tools, like a well simple in this country, and it's night and day, right? And frankly, I think to myself, like, that's the opportunity. The opportunity is you're never going to know. And they even said, I've heard banks said, I said, look, no one's ever going to love their bank. And it's just like, that's a very different, wrong way to look at things. Maybe they could love the service provided through their bank, through someone else. Right. And the small players are never going to have the capital raise to build that back end infrastructure. That's my utopian view of the world. But we can continue <laughs> on. But I think this is, it's important for the entire ecosystem to get engaged on this open banking topic Agreed. because it has the opportunity to create some new winners and losers. And I think it's not going to work out well for us if the banks are the only sort of lobby group that gets its act together, it will shape the regulation to its own ends. And there are a lot of other stakeholders that could play a role and result in a better service for Canadians. 100%. And like I said, you know, it goes back to that entire concept of if you have a bunch of people working on being best in class at one thing, you get a lot of best in class individual fragments. However, we need a way to roll that up to some degree too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you talk about the one of the most contentious data rights issues in the world right now. I mean, like that's it. It's open banking, right? Like, I mean, the concept of, I mean, every time there's another breach of something like a Facebook or whatever it yeah. is, that, that concern becomes ever more pressing, but we've got to keep pushing forward with this. So, well, and, and I think, so this is, this is where digital literacy becomes so important. So we have data aggregation services today, account aggregation services done through screen scraping, which is not which, ideal, which is not the secure way to do it. No. So open banking, if done properly should be more secure, but yeah. people need to really get under the covers and understand what's involved in these things to get that. We hear at a hundred thousand feet, this means sharing your data back and forth and everybody goes, Oh, that's a security challenge. But we and, can do it in a more secure way that's being done. Currently. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. So we wanted to talk about how digital innovation was going to be fostered or digital uh, implementation of, of the advisor world is going to change based on what you're seeing. Tell me what you're seeing or what you think is going to happen <laughs> for, <laughs> for clients, consumers. And it's a loaded question. It's a broad one. But for advisors, for incumbents, for for clients in general, what's, what's that future digital world look like? Okay. So how do we unpack that? Because that's <laughs> huge. <laughs> um, you lead the way, however you want to go. So it's, it's interesting because when we go back to the behavioral economics principles we were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. one of the challenges is, you know, the consumers have to start by trying more of these things. Yeah. I just came across a, a chart last week that showed rates of fintech adoption in different countries around the world. China was by far the leader. India, India was not close, was not far behind China, mm -hmm. but after that it falls off. Yeah. Um, and Canada was something like number 15 on this list. And uh, of 17 now, that's <laughs> pretty close. Actually, it, it, I think there were, <laughs> um, we were oh, like boy. third from the bottom in yeah. the sample set that they looked at. It was about 20, 25 countries. And part of the challenge here is that we've actually had it too good. People embrace a new behavior when the current behavior is really not working for them. Yeah. The status quo becomes too uncomfortable. And so you feel compelled to break the inertia and try something new. And well, I mean, it's, it's the same thing as evolution, right? Evolution is not optimized for the perfect entity for that space. It optimizes to the point where they can survive, right? It's yeah. good enough. And you know what? It's not surprising India and China have that because it's the same thing with digital adoption regarding cell phones, right? Like a lot of countries had no landlines and just skipped over that and went straight to right. uh, straight to cellular. Yeah. But it's dissimilar to the penetration of, of mobile phones because Canada has amongst the highest rates of mobile phone, right. smartphone yes. um, adoption, the highest rates of high-speed internet in the world, you know, close to the highest rates. And Still doesn't feel that way, but continue. <laughs> but, but we're not engaging with the value-added apps and, and digital tools that come through those pipes. Mm -hmm. 
And it's largely because things are working fine. Canada was mm -hmm. among the first adopters of contactless payment, for example. So when people were used to tapping, yeah. that was pretty cool. That was convenient. We adopted that quite quickly. Yeah. Apple Pay is not a revelation because of that. Exactly. Um, whereas a digital technology, fintech adoption rates in the States are better than here because they didn't ever really, they adopted contactless late. And so it's sort of the Apple Pay digital wallet thing yeah. leapfrogged it so that's something that i think we're going to have to wait until the fintech tools get to the point where they're a compelling value add mm -hmm. to get people to start to make a change but it really is a different way of thinking and so we need the banks to innovate to create a compelling enough solution to get consumers to try this new stuff but um, i'm gonna go meet up on canadian banking systems again i mean part of this to me, reeks of the simple fact of oligopolistic size, right? Like we have six large banks that control all of this. Whereas in the US, you have like what, 4,500 banks or something like that? Some number that's just dwarfs yeah, the mind. Thousands. There's more need for competition. I mean, the, the trade off is, is that a lot of them don't have the scale to build stuff like this, right. right? But at the same time, there's more need for competition by need, more need for experimentation, right? So I question how much this is going to be held back due to simple lack of six big fat cats not feeling hungry. You can't ignore that. That's yeah. certainly part of the story. But I think the Canadian banks are certainly aware that firms like Amazon represent a credible threat. Huge you know, threat we, to everyone in existence. We, <laughs> we look at, at what Amazon has, the moves it's made in financial services, yep. you know, in, initially with providing credit to vendors that sold on its platform. Then it launched, it's launched two different waves, I think of, of credit cards with different types yep. of rewards. Um, last Insurance year, now. yeah, last year they, for prime customers using their gift card infrastructure, it was sort it's sort of like the Starbucks card where every mm -hmm. time you load value into this card, it was I think it was a 5% bump in value. It was huge. Yeah. So you compare that to putting your money in a checking account, yeah. right? If you think of this as interest, the, yeah. the loyalty reward, the value was tremendous. But it makes only perfect in the sense, States. right? Because checking is used for basically for consumption, right? Exactly. So if you're going to give people return, give it to them out of your margin and give them a 5% bump on what they can spend. Yes, exactly. What um, margin? Sorry. It's Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> so Amazon is very clearly experimenting with a number of different types of financial services. Canadian banks are aware of things like Ant Financial and Alibaba mm -hmm. in um, China and how when you get somebody really immersed in your ecosystem, you reduce the friction of them engaging in other types of value added services. Mm -hmm. So you, you know, you create this sort of spending account. If they're immersed in your application, they do a lot of e-commerce activity through that application. You provide loyalty reward kinds yeah. of things on those accounts. And then, oh, well, you've got some value sitting here. Of course, we should invest it yeah. in a money market fund. So you, so yeah. we don't actually have to give you the reward for it. The marketing you I mean, the Apple's reward for it. keep money on deposit in the U.S. now, too. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, you, you want to look at adoption rates, slightly different. But I mean, like you look at WeChat and just the ability to transfer payment in China. Like that is the preferred method of payment transfer for just about everything. You can literally renew your driver's license using WeChat and their payment system. Like, yeah. Just mind-blowing compared to what we deal with here. Yeah, exactly. But they lose that. But then again, who cares what the bank is on the back end there or if there is one, right? Like it's, this is what the challenge and the danger is. Well, and, and this is what'll be interesting because the Canadian banks love to talk about how, how their key asset is trust. And that's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. Canadians trust our banks to be stable, to yeah. be there in the future. And frankly, to not, to not be fraudulent. I mean, do, are they always on my side? Maybe not. But I've done a lot of consumer research in this yeah. area in my consulting practice. And Canadians do think of the banks as, you know, I might not be getting the best deal, but I'm not getting totally screwed. They don't do that. I'm right? only half pregnant. <laughs> it's like, well, but to it's, a degree. But it's true. Uh, yeah. I'm um, curious. How does that differ? Have you seen this? How does that differ amongst age groups? Because, you know, what I typically hear amongst the millennial population is that brand and that kind of concept just doesn't resonate with them the same way that the opposite of the spectrum, people still remember depressionary mentalities, right? Like, it just seems like to them, they're more likely to adopt just because of technological and being digital natives. They're more likely to adopt alternative solutions that are digitally driven that do not necessarily have the big bank behind them. So it's interesting. I actually just completed a, a substantial research project on millennials and investing for the OSC. And I wanted to read this. Go that on. was one of the things yeah. that we explored was to what extent are millennials disengaged from traditional financial sources. And the reality was that millennials, the default was still 
to go to the bank. Fair enough. And it becomes, it's particularly true with more complex financial services. So they will, they will engage with quick, easy to use financial tools for day-to-day spending kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to, I need to buy a house house and I need a mortgage and I need to be educated about what a mortgage is, how I shop for a mortgage, they go to the bank and then they might, they might do some Googling to validate what they're hearing and check it out. So it's, it's not like a sheep to slaughter kind of thing where I just go in and take everything at face value. They're more critical about the information that they get there. But it was really fascinating. One of the things we did was we had a woman. So in this research, one of the things we did was we put a browser in front of people. Mm-hmm. We said, okay, so you're thinking about starting investing. How would you start this? And Google. most people, <laughs> but they don't. Really? This is, this is the fascinating huh. thing. And it's another example of inertia and choice overload. So people who don't come from a family where they have been sort of immersed in investing kind of language, even basic things, yeah. right? They don't know where to start. And something like sitting in front of that empty search bar in front of your browser, like don't know where to start extends right to, I don't know what to type in the search bar. (laughs) Oh, wow. I'm not exaggerating. So we sat there with this woman and we said, okay, so you're stuck here for an hour and a half with us, figure it out. And this woman had a master's degree in political science. Okay. Mm -hmm. So this is somebody who knows how to research things. Yes. And she was completely paralyzed by this whole investing thing. Because her frame around this was, I'm a liberal arts kind of person. I'm not a math person. I hate math. I suck at math. So already started from a place of fear and intimidation. So she's sitting there in front of the Google thing. And she's like, yeah, I just don't know. And so we're like, okay, well, give it a shot, right? And we'll we'll coach you through. Mm. So she, she tries something like how to get started investing. And the first thing that comes back is, so actually this is interesting. Her results, the first result that came up was well simple. Marketing dollars well spent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good SEO. (laughs) And um, the second one was, was a bank. And so she looked at those and she said, okay, I know that's paid search. I'm not going to click on those. Okay. So the critical thinking muscle was, was kicking in. So she goes to the first sort of, I must say, I I think that that response is probably more, much more rare than people would believe because I mean, I mean, I think Google's data backs it up. They keep on adding more and more paid search at the top and it's increasing the revenue, not decreasing it. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but so maybe this is more of a millennial thing. They do understand that. Yeah. The nature of Um, it. But so the first content article that came up was a Forbes article. So, and she, she liked things. She gravitated towards the things that said were lists. It was like seven ways to get started, yeah, or, you know, yeah. best top five, five top steps. things. Yeah. Right. And so she, she's describing all of this to us as, as she's so in browsing. Way, she's, she's satisficing the bare minimum she needs to do in order to understand that in digestible yeah. bite sizes. Yeah. 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 So she opens this Forbes article and the first thing it says, go open an account at base, whatever they call a direct investing platform Fair in enough. the States. And she's like, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> so this is, I mean, for somebody who's, yeah. who wants to get started investing, yeah. that is not what you should no. do first. Go open a self-directed no, brokerage account, not. right? The second thing was peer-to-peer lending. And that was she number two? At, that was number two. Oh, God. And she looks at it and she says, I want uh, to invest. I don't want to lend. <laughs> in an unregulated market to people who Just, I have to then basically source who I'm going to get money to. Yeah. But, so picture this, right? Yeah. This is a 28-whatever-year-old woman who knows absolutely nothing about investing. She's got something like three grand saved, yeah. and she knows she wants to start this. She knows she yeah. needs to do something to get this money working for her. She's got all that down. But this is how the internet treats her, this right? Is what, this is what I find troubling is that this is what PageRank gave her. Like, this is what people are linking to yeah. as a, like, ABCs of how you get started. And you know what? I'm going to, and I will place the blame on our industry in general because I'm sure the people creating these links that link to those pages are advisors who are trying to sell or, or, or do it yourself, you know, pros firms, or firms who are basically yeah. trying to trying to sell a prize. So it all links to that. But is it relevant? It's interesting because it leads to an interesting hole of, of irrelevance because it's not what the person needs. No. And it, so this is an extreme example, right? Yeah. But the biggest point was she didn't even know what to put in the Google search bar. And even with us sitting there prompting her, she was really anxious about it. And so if she had not been in that room with us, you know, no way in hell would she have ever gotten over that hump 
on her own. Yeah. Or is it is it a bit of Hawthorne? I mean, I think there might be a flip side of that. She's highly educated, just not in the area of that. And I, there's definitely a, a situation of embarrassment when some people who have attained a certain level feel they can't do something else at a, at a basic level, right? So yeah. yeah, I'm sure there was some of that as well. But nevertheless, you're right. It's the, the bottom line is she couldn't get past stage one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The getting started thing is is extremely difficult. So one of the things that was interesting was they do go to banks. Basically, mm -hmm. this process of getting started is so complicated and overwhelming. The yep. default is, you know, I just want to sit and talk to somebody yeah. so that they can at least help me with a starting point. Yeah, I'm not going to take what they say as gospel, yep. but I need an orientation here because I don't I, know what yeah. I don't know. As Wealthfront is finding out slowly, if just to give background, their original mandate was we're going to put advisors out of business. There's no need for them. We can do this better with technology, blah, blah, blah. Right and basically just distance themselves from the entire advisor community. Right. Meanwhile, basically Betterment and the likes of Well Simple create advisor platforms and every other robot saying like, no, this is smarter. We could probably enable you guys, bigger market share. Clients seem to really like their advisors. There's certain things we can't scale in terms of advice. We can't sit down with each of them, explain the basics of something. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's led to some contention and most recently a down round. So we'll yeah. see how that goes going forward. So one of the things that's interesting is, so when they go in to speak to somebody at the bank, they know enough to know that there's some commission thing going on here. Okay. So there is, yeah. there is a human being here that somehow needs to be paid for this time that's being yeah. spent with me. So they're quite suspicious of the incentive model. Of, the younger of, generation is. Yes. Yes. Because the older generation, I kid you not, the number of times we hear, like yeah, all of us testify this, it's like, well, what do you mean I'm paying for it? Yeah, like, they think it's free. But so millennials, of course, because they grew up in this freemium app world, yeah. they're accustomed to, so they go into the bank, they know that when there's a human being sitting there, you know, it costs, that's something, something. It costs something. But when they go to something like Wealth Simple, they don't have that suspicion because of their comfort with this freemium model. But also the transparency is there. Like they put on their website, this is what it costs. But that still doesn't, so they think that there is no yeah. conflict of interest because there isn't a human being yeah. sitting there Got that it. needs to be paid. Fair enough. So the distance from the concept of a, of a living being being there basically creates a different mindset in their mind that they're, that this person is not looking out for themselves. The company's looking out for itself, but the person's not going to lead me the wrong way because it's for themselves. Yeah. And I think so, yeah. but this is what's interesting. They don't talk about anyway, worrying about the company looking out for itself. And I don't know if it's, this is why I mentioned the freemium thing, because maybe they figure creating an app is a fixed cost. And I don't know how, you know, this is hmm. a finance person's language coming through, obviously, but they just have a mental model of digital things are super cheap. And that's just sort of the way the world works. So I accept that there are things that happen that fund that mm -hmm. and it ain't coming out, out of my pocket. So fair enough. They're used they, to a world where they change, where they exchange their, some degree of their personal information for a right to something. They're used to that. Yeah. yeah it feels like, oh, I can get something for something that feels like free yeah. to me. Mm -hmm. So while Simple does a great job of being transparent about its fees. Because it's not even a credit card, they don't think of it. It doesn't figure prominently in what hmm. those users think of or why they use that service. Interesting. Interesting dichotomy and difference. Good. So I forgot how we got on this topic, but it was a very interesting one to get to. Get to. <laughs> well, the last thing we're going to talk about was how traditional sales forces are going to be impacted or enabled by everything that's going on. So where would you like to go with that part of the conversation? <laughs> so what I find Fascinating. You know, so as, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, when this robo-advice thing first came out, the narrative was very much around how we're going to eliminate advisors. And that didn't last too long. No. Um, because, you know, partly because of what I talked about earlier that, I mean, robo-advice 1.0 is really not that different than the digital thermostat, the, the programmable thermostat that we had to program. It wasn't was, an awesome user yeah. experience. But there's also, um, this, I think there was a dichotomy between what, they, what the people believe the advisor's role was versus what it actually was. And yes, you don't get me wrong, portfolio management and rebalancing and all that sort of stuff. Yes, that is much better handled by digital pieces than it is by individuals, but actual financial planning, that's a different story altogether. It is, but the reality is that most Canadians don't get access to financial planning, you, you know, unless 
unless you've got at the very least over a hundred grand, you can't find somebody to spend that kind of time with you. So when you look at the vast majority of Canadians, the definition of financial advice that they get is someone selling them a mutual fund. So robo advice actually is a pretty decent proxy for that. Mm -hmm. It at least makes sure that you stay rebalanced in some way. Now you could buy a managed solution, but people don't understand that well enough either to I've found so little so rarely have I seen it called out that basically robo advice with a selects an asset mix and rebalances to that asset mix automatically is the same thing as a managed solution. Absolutely. Um, They're it's identical. Just, it's just that plus digital oh. onboarding with e- and yeah. it's a little cheaper because it's got ETFs. Well, not instead. necessarily because there's also ETF based uh, managed solutions that are like that, that are priced exactly the same as the robo advisors. Close. Yeah. And I don't think it's exactly the same, but it's close. Well, when you fa- yeah. So the, we can debate. And becoming, and becoming more and more like that. Absolutely. When, when robo advice first came on the scene, that was not true. So how are things going to change? What I've spoken on the convergence Mm -hmm. between digital banking and digital wealth a few times conferences over the last couple of years. And I have this chart that shows sort of the six buckets of what goes into complete financial advice. So Mm -hmm. it's starting to, it's giving you insight into where your money's going, the Mm -hmm. sort of the PFM kind of thing. It's Savings nudges, so that mm-hmm. making sure there is some money automatically yep. going into getting out of your hot little hands. It's some kind of goal setting, risk profiling, you know, to figure out what mm-hmm. what's to, to yep. assess suitability mm-hmm. in KYC. Then from that, there is the construction of an asset, construction and maintenance of an asset mix. Mm-hmm. And so picture having a list of fintech companies down the left side and those buckets, those criteria of financial yep. advice across the top. Well, if you go back five years ago, you had things like Acorns, mm-hmm. which was just micro savings. Yep. It wasn't even robo. It didn't, it wasn't even in, in a robo advice platform. Um, nope. It didn't, wasn't yep. put, those savings weren't put into yep. um, an investment vehicle at that time. So purely savings roundups. Mm-hmm. Then you had your mint.com kinds of things yep. that For were just PFM. Yep. You know, it's not actually helping me do anything. It's just giving me insight. So yep. Very fragmented experience. And then, of course, you had the pure robo-advice that was was yeah. just once you've saved some money, you deposited it in here and we'll invest it for you. Well, as I've updated this chart continually over the last few years, what you see is the acorns of the world have gone from just savings roundups into robo-advice. They're aggregating your accounts. So you're now getting PFM insights Mm -hmm. on top of it. And, you know, in Canada, the closest thing we have to that is a company out of Montreal called Milo, Mm -hmm. M-Y-L-O. You know, we also have like the cohos of the world that are really just banking and payments at this point, um, trying to provide a, a lower cost digital solution. But Acorns just last week launched its first debit card. So they went from aggregating the data from your existing bank accounts mm-hmm. to launching their own. Coho yep. started with launching the, the, launching the yep. bank account. So anyway, the, the point is you, you see the companies that started in the banking piece adding on the investment piece, mm-hmm. which makes awesome sense. It's a natural me. flow, right? But like- we don't see the reverse. The bulk of the robo-advice activity in the States has been your, your Fidelities and Schwabs and Vanguards. Mm-hmm. They are not moving into the personal financial insights. No. And in Canada, we have, you know, RBC, for example, I believe has the best fintech functionality of the big banks, but it's still completely fragmented. They have the savings roundups, they have Mm -hmm. PFM insights, but it's not connected to growing your longer term wealth at all. And they have, no. they have a robo advisor, obviously, yep. but they don't have the savings roundups growing the robo advisor. A couple of challenges there. Is that just their traditional way of thinking in terms of product line? Is that their legacy systems not allowing for backend integration? Like what is, what do you think is the impetus behind that? My belief, my educated opinion on it is that it's more about the silos within the bank than it is about anything else. Because with the robo-advisor, that's a piece of technology that you could have just as easily put on that side of the house to enable the the savings roundups you could have put in Mm -hmm. the robo-advisor. I think it's a way of thinking. People who live in the wealth business don't think about yeah. everyday banking. That's so lack of the overall vision for how this all integrates into yeah. one core system. And it's and it's also cultural. I mean, as somebody who grew up in the capital markets business, yeah. 
there's a bit of a hierarchy here. The wealth business tends to think of itself as just this more rarefied, precious yeah. thing rather than just that more commodity, everyday banking. So we're not connecting the dots between this idea that, hey, we want to grow AUM. That comes from helping people save. Yeah. Right. And when we've had real wages have stagnated for a long time long now. now. Yep. So the industry, I think, really needs to start looking harder at growing AUM by helping people save mm -hmm. rather than just sitting around and saying, okay, when you've got a hundred grand, come, yeah, come talk to me because yep. people aren't getting there without help. So we're not know, as fast at the very least. Exactly. And or fewer people. Are. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you ask, you know, what does all of this mean for how the industry is structured today and the sales, the advisory workforces that are out there today, it has some pretty substantial implications and every firm is going to have to deal. They have a lot of challenges because they have to fundamentally rethink some of their business models around this stuff. Mm -hmm. We've got thousands of people out there. And it's funny because what I'm getting from the entire part of that conversation is the classic mistake of so many people in the non-digital realm. The digital realm does a much better job of this is they're not putting the client at the center of the relationship or, or the center of the focus. And they talk about client service all the time, but don't seem to ever sit back and say, okay, let's actually look at it from their standpoint and design the entire experience to encase their true needs, not just say, oh, we have 15 lines of business that meet every need on a checklist, but it's still super fragmented because guess what? That's what meets our, that's as easy as we can do it for ourselves. I couldn't disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> you could um, agree with it. <laughs> I'm kidding. So before we wrap up, because we're, we're about taking a lot of your time already. One of the questions I ask everybody is what about this space or what's going on excites you the most? right now? I think it's it's the potential to help improve Canadians' financial well-being. I mean, during my 25-year career, savings rates in this country have dropped from something in the order of 16-17% mm -hmm. to somewhere between zero and five. Mm -hmm. so call it you know, yeah. two, three. Barely existent. And that just ain't going to cut it. The reason the OSC commissioned this millennial study that I did earlier this year was because we need to figure out how to engage millennials in this longer term saving and investing activity while they still have time on their side. So we yeah. don't have a whole nother generation of Ontarians getting to retirement. And I say yeah. that in air quotes, because obviously the definition of retirement is, is evolving. It's, it's happening later. It's, you know, and people are, are often not completely retiring. And when you're talking to kids who are like 20 something, it's like, yeah, like I have that to worry about. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But they, they are going to need to worry yeah. about that. And the savings rates have declined at the same time that defined benefit Pension plans have been obliterated. So we, as a citizen, it concerns me that we don't have the policy landscape working properly to help Canadians solve this problem because we are not, we're overrun by fat smokers. So we've, we've got to fix this. Yeah. And what excites me is that I think fintech has the opportunity to help save us from ourselves, to Absolutely. make it easy enough yep. to make better decisions so that we're in better shape in the long yeah. run. It's interesting. One of the things I've done in my course at York is that basically I've it's a financial planning course and I wanted to teach them fundamentals of investing, but I was not about to run an investing competition because those things basically, in my opinion, teach you the complete wrong lesson. It is basically yeah. to be a trader, right? Exactly, Which is, yeah. And if you want to win this thing, you've got to take outlandish risks. Like that's basically it. Whereas this, you know, for my project, it was, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to open up a well simple account. You're going to put $10 in there and you're going to report on where it is every week at the end of the year. Right. I even said, the honest truth is, is this is not for me. This is for you. I want you to understand what it actually is to open up an account, what it actually looks like to have a diversified portfolio, what volatility actually looks like. And the feedback I've gotten thus far, a couple of people, of course, you know, you never please everybody, but the vast majority of them have been like, this is the most useful, informative assignment I've ever had at any level of education because I realized just how wrong I was about all this, that I can open, I can do this very simply, that I can do some basic things for myself to better my life very quickly. And that uh, some of the ones were, were just absurd with their expectations for return because they hadn't been educated yeah. were just preposterous. Like yeah. some of these people were like, literally, I thought I would double my money every year. It's like just basic math tells you it's not. So you're absolutely so right. So in that, in that vein, you know, we talk, I've also done a lot of work in the financial literacy arena. Mm -hmm. I did a, a substantial project for the Canada Student Loan Program a number mm -hmm. of years ago, a financial literacy strategy associated with student debt. So when people, you know, people love to say we need financial literacy as part of the high school curriculum. Yeah. And 
I have two kids who've just recently finished high school and, and there actually was financial literacy in the grade 10 math curriculum mm -hmm. for a number of years. The problem was they taught you how to calculate compound interest on a mortgage. They didn't teach you what a mortgage actually was for. So <laughs> Or how much or when you should how much you should lever yourself or anything like any that. Any of yeah. that. And so when we talk about financial literacy in the curriculum today, I think what we need to do is have every kid take out their smartphone, download their bank's mobile app, and start using the banks have a lot of ways to improve, but they all have some type of PFM functionality. And we should Just be starting to educate kids yep. how much, you know, you're hanging out at Starbucks every day and that five or six bucks yep. or whatever, even like trying to frame Forget it in kids, terms of everyone, everyone. Cause I tell clients all the time, I, I, have, I want them to sign for one of those because I'm like, I'm not trying to judge where you spend your money, but you should look at it after the fact, yeah. after a duration of time and understand did you get value out of that or not? Exactly. And yeah. so for, for high school kids, what yeah. we can be starting to do is you don't talk to them about retirement or even buying houses, but you talk to them about, hey, everybody knows that this whole student loan thing is a bummer. A lot of kids yeah. are graduating from university with large amounts of debt. This Starbucks habit that you have now would equate to X percent of your tuition or yeah. three months of residence or being or, debt free this many years sooner. Exactly. Yeah. We need to frame up what yeah. these decisions today mean, yeah. what the longer term consequences are of these decisions you're making today. Yeah. And we need to do it in a completely digital way. Like teach them to use these consumer tools. Yeah. This should not be taught from a book. I think this is where I struggle with, with the concept of financial education too. I think that the varying opinions on it are I struggle with. Like you get some people who get to the, you know, who just have this motivation that they should learn to do everything yourself. It's like, well, you don't know how to repair your car engine yourself. You don't know how to do your own dentistry, nor should you. Like understand the fact that this is not about replacing an industry. This is about basically empowering people with the fundamental basic principles so that they do not have the I'm frozen at the Google box attitude or that they can, through very simple tools, implement basically behavioral changes. And are you familiar with the, the studies that were done in the U.S. that talked about the efficacy of financial literacy programming and they basically found that if you didn't use it within the first six months it's as if you didn't take it all together that's we created this financial literacy leader in canada yeah. five or six years ago and i'm really pleased that that they have figured that out yeah. i mean there, there are lots of studies that basically say teaching people things doesn't address the gap between what we think say and do yeah we have to it we're, we serve people much better by teaching them one simple thing that they will implement regularly yeah. rather than a much more complex thing that only affects them at a couple of key points in their life. Which makes me think that I should probably add mint.com to that assignment as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Well, Amy, this has been fantastic. Thank you very much for taking the time. And Thank you. interesting uh, chat. Yes. <laughs> Take care. So that was my interview with Amelia Young of Upside Consulting. I hope you enjoyed that. Just an update. Since this podcast was recorded, Amy has since taken an in-house position at uh, BMO, helping them drive their digital innovation solutions. So I wish her nothing but luck. And until next time, as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get this podcast. And thank you again for joining us. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.